Last time I thought I was done with the life of Abraham, but I discovered when I was studying that I wasn't. So I want to look at Genesis 24 tonight. Start by reading um, the first nine verses. If you care to follow along, you may. I'm not offended if you don't. Abraham 24, Abraham. <laughs> Extra biblical source there. Genesis 24, verse 1. And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house, that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, out of request from your employer. And I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me into this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from whence thou camest? And Abraham said unto him, Beware that thou... Beware thou, that thou bring not my son to there again. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house, and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land, he shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this thy oath, from this my oath, only bring not my son to there again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master, and swear unto him concerning that matter. Contrary to what you may be thinking, we are not talking about marriage this evening. Come in, ladies. Help yourselves to a seat. Preferably one that is unoccupied currently. The question that I um, came across, I guess you could say, while I was reading this passage, is, is um, the issue of finding God's will. I know you. none of you ever have questions about finding God's will in your lives, I'm sure. But, uh, so, just some questions to sort of get you started thinking. Where are you now? And I don't mean this room. I mean, like, where, where are you in life? And then how did you get here? And where are you going? And those, actually answering those questions takes a good deal of thought to, to actually sit down and figure out some of that. Where will you go next? Um, Carl sent me this great, great little cartoon last week of a, a monkey with really frazzled hair and said, you know, people talk about 10-year goals. I'm just trying to make it to Friday. And last week was sort of one of those weeks. But have you ever been around somebody that, like, gets out of high school and they know what they're going to do and they got, like, the next 10 years of their lives mapped out? Do you feel just a little bit intimidated by people like that? Um, Okay, so let's let's put this in, into into shoe leather here. How do you personally deal with the uncertainty of wondering what God wants you to do with your life? You feel at peace because you're a Mountain View. You feel like you you feel like being here. God has has settled the next ten years for you. One of the benefits of coming to Mountain View can be that. You don't have to make any life decisions for a while. You know what I mean? Like you're here, you, you sort of know about how long you're going to be here, and, and that time period is set. Well, I can tell you 12 years later that 15 months is like this when you're my age. It just it goes by just like that. It's, it's, not, it's not much at all. Um, but but uh, you sort of, while you're here, you sort of know where you belong. 
and what you should be doing today and what you should be doing next week. Well, how do you know that? Well, because the schedule tells you. And if you don't like it, you can blame the guy that does the schedule. But, but your life is mapped out for you to a certain extent. And there's some, um, there's some comfort in that. There's probably some chafing that goes along with that when, when the map doesn't say what you want it to say. Um, but I got a question. So what's going to happen when it ends? I thought Ryan wasn't home tonight, and the guy's called Riggs. What's going to happen when it ends? You ever feel anxiety about what's going to happen when you leave Mountain View? As you think about the future, what exactly is it that causes us to be anxious about the future? See, I, I've, I've talked about this some before, but it's, it's been a while, and, and this is a little bit of a new, a new way of looking at it. But I've said before that we tend to break things down in categories to simplify them. So uh, here's a... I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I'm probably going to bunny trail today, and I am going to bunny trail because I'm going to do it right now. Um, color is a really interesting thing. Did you know that most languages do not have a color for blue until the last 2,000 years or so? Because they, um, it's not that they didn't see it, it's that they didn't really recognize it as a different color. And I'll tell you why. Maria, Cassandra, Melody, Hannah, Alicia, she has a name, <laughs> uh, are all wearing what color tonight? Not you, not you, you. I'm sorry, I'm just really quiet. Huh? Yeah, you. Jaleesa. Jaleesa. <laughs> I was wrong with the J. I'm sorry. Um, what color are they wearing? Christy, you too, actually. Green. Green. Is it all the same shade of green? No, but you're satisfied with calling it green, right? Well, an interesting thing that happened, uh, or that, that we do, is that when we have a broader category, we tend to lump everything within that category, everything that falls remotely close to that into that category. And so what ancient peoples did is they didn't really have a, a, a specific color blue because they didn't know how to create it. They saw it, they had a really hard time manufacturing something that was blue. And so blue got lumped in with other colors because they didn't see it as being different enough to have its own color. Does that make sense? And, and what happened was, it had, like now we see it because we can make blue. We can make blue clothing and blue you know, vinyl siding and paintings and whatever else. But back then they couldn't. So blue just got thrown in a category with another color because it wasn't defined. And, and that's generally how we tend to do with our thinking. We, we take a large section of things and we throw it all into the same category because it makes it easy for, easier for us to think about that. And the same thing happens with information in our lives in general. And we generally lump things into two categories. Um, And the two categories, now this, this may seem like oversimplification, but the two categories are we have things that we know and things that we don't know. And so what we know is where I'm sitting right now, what you're wearing, what you're doing tomorrow, those things are things that you know. But then there's this whole other realm of information of stuff that you don't know that if you were to, that if you were to encounter it, you would have no way of understanding it until you move it from the realm of what is called chaos into order. You've probably heard the terms chaos and order, and I hope I don't get things too muddy for you tonight. But I want to 
I'm going to try to explain some of this for you in a way that makes, yeah, I guess if we hit resume slideshow, that would help. In a way that makes, makes uh, this story here in Genesis make a little more sense. So you have what's known, and you have what's not known. And we refer to those as chaos and order. And you might think that, oh, well, that's just a fancy term. Um, but actually, it's in our DNA. And it's not just in our DNA, it's in our scriptures. Genesis 1, verse 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. That word, that phrase, without form and void, is the Hebrew phrase tohu vavohu, which literally means chaos. The earth was chaos. In other words, there was nothing formed yet. There was nothing put together. And over the next six days of creation, God takes that chaos and he puts it into order, and that's what we see in the world today. But along with that, God also created our minds and our human experience to center around chaos and order. And here's what I mean by that. A good definition of order is when you know what's expected, you know what's going on, and you know where you fit into that. And so right now, um, that might be life at Mountain View, because that's, what familiar, that's what's familiar to you. You know what you're doing tonight, you know what you're doing tomorrow, you sort of know where you belong, your dorm feels like home to a certain point. Did it feel like that the day you got here? How many of you would say that it felt like chaos when you got here? Everything was unfamiliar. It's sort of like when you go to Bible school for the first time, right? You know nobody, you unload your luggage, and you sit in your bunk and you're like, and I came here because, why again? Because everything feels so completely new. But what happens is, we're pretty good at taking chaos and turning it into order. Because we become adjusted. So when you came here, home, I mean, I'm saying this in general, home, your home church, your home youth group, your work, your home community, all of that was order and Mountain View was chaos. And 15 months later when you leave, it's exactly the opposite, right? Mountain View is now familiar and known and you understand where you fit in. And home now feels like chaos. Because everybody else also happened to be alive in those 15 months that you were here and they moved on just like you did. And so the, the whole order chaos thing changes as we go through life. Um, it's so interesting because we're actually, our, our brains are biologically, neurologically wired treat life or to see life like this. And I'll show you what I mean here. Um, so your brain is made up of two hemispheres. Most of you probably know that already. You have the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere, and they, they work, forgive me for oversimplifying this, but they work across. Right side of the brain controls left side of the body. Left side of the brain is dominant right side of the body. Um, there's actually a pretty decent mix of folks here currently. A lot of left-handed people. And, and uh, I don't really know what all makes that other than simple genetics. But, but basically, those two sides of the brain, the two hemispheres of your, brains have, of your brain, have different functions. So the right side, the right hemisphere, this side here, uh, that's where art awareness comes from, creativity, imagination, intuition, and music awareness. The arts, liberal arts, things like painting, sculpting. Why? Because a sculptor takes a piece of clay that's formless and shapes it into something that's orderly. Same thing happens with a painting. They have to take what they see in their mind's eye and have the ability to 
put it on a canvas. To the point that, you know, 500 years later, if your last name was Michelangelo or Picasso, your painting might be worth $10 million. All because you had the ability to take what you saw in the right hemisphere of your brain and put it on a piece of parchment or on a painting. Now, the left hemisphere is then responsible for analytical thought, logic, language and writing, science and math, reasoning, number skills, all of the stuff that's easily put in order and detailed. So what happens is, when you came to Mountain View, this is literally what happened. When you came to Mountain View, the right side of your brain was an overdrive. Because there was a lot of unfamiliar things, and your mind is trying to figure out what all is there. And so this side of the brain is firing off rapidly. And the longer you were here, the more of that brain activity transferred to the left side of your brain. Because you're taking chaos and turning it over into order. You're taking what's unknown and changing it into what's known. They can actually do this with people that are learning to, like a, a pianist that's learning a new piece. They can do brain scans while you're sitting down there learning how to play this new Mozart piece or whatever. And initially, as you're working through it and figuring it out, it's the right side of the brain that's firing because you're trying to learn what's going on. And the, the more you know that piece and the more you begin to be able to play that, the brain activity transfers to the other side of the brain. So God actually created us to live in a world where there's things that are unknown and where there's things that are known. And he also gave us the ability to take the things that are unknown and shift them from chaos over into the, into the realm of things that we know. It doesn't just play out like that in our brains, though. There's other ways that this, uh, this whole thing this whole thing affects us because God created this tension in us that there's things that we know and there's things that we don't know. And based on your personality, you're going to be more curious. Some people are going to be more curious about what's unknown. And other people are going to be a lot less curious about what's unknown. Because a lot of what personality is, is defining your relationship with, with new things. And, I, and I'll try to explain that for you here. Maybe, maybe, this, will, maybe this will help. Um, people, that are, people that are dominant order personalities, they like structure a lot. We call them traditionalists. They are most likely to feel threatened by new ideas or change. And they like stability in what is known and understood. <clears throat> now, take somebody that has a more dominant chaos personality. They have less use for structure and tradition. They're more open-minded. They're visionaries. They're entrepreneurs. And this, by the way actually fits across the personality spectrums. Like, you can see that people with this type of personality are far more likely to succeed than people with this type of personality, in the business sense. Now, that, that's, you know, that's monetary. But basically, the, uh, the people that are most likely to have a lot of money are people that are high in openness and high in conscientiousness, because they're very orderly, but they're also willing to try new things. So a guy like Elon Musk, for example, has this crazy idea that we can go to Mars. He's also one of the richest men in the world. His personality actually plays a part in that because of what he's naturally willing to think about and entertain, whereas somebody like me is like, I'm just trying to get through class tonight. I don't have time to think about Mars. Somebody, that, uh, somebody that's dominant chaos personality is much more willing to push the edge of what is known and normal and accepted. Um, 
So you can probably see that there's advantages and disadvantages to, to looking at life in these ways. And I'm not saying that one way is better than the other. I think I'm probably going to have time to, to explain some of these, these things a little more. But um, you actually see this playing out in churches a lot. Because a lot of church splits happen right down the center of that line. You have a lot of people that's, that want to try new things. They see where the system's not working. And they leave. And you have people that like structure. They like the stability of the things, of things being the way we've done them. Why? Because they feel safe. And so they stay. Or, you know, occasionally the split happens the other way. But, but it often tends to be down those lines. Order. Some pros and cons here. People that are dominant order provide a lot of structure and stability. That's a pro, by the way. And by the way, any of the positives of these things are also the negatives, if they're, if they're overplayed. But people that are dominant order um, provide a lot of structure and stability. The downside of that is it tends toward tyranny. Nazi Germany was a classic example of that. The Nazis were brilliant. And, uh, and it's, not just, it's not just the Nazi thing. Your best engineers came from Germany years ago. Albert Einstein, well, I guess he wasn't from Germany. I believe he was Austrian. Um, happens to be Jewish, by the way. <clears throat> that was lame, though. I wasn't thinking of going down. Um, the People's Republic of North Korea. Way too much structure and order. They tend toward tyranny. China, same thing. They tend toward tyranny. Why? Because they don't want to try anything. They don't want anybody attempting anything that's outside of the control of the state. And I'll give you one example of how the Germans, uh, the Germans were really, really good at this. Um, it's believed that Hitler was a germaphobe and took as many as four showers a day because he was so picky about keeping his body clean. You know what he called the Jews? In his meetings with like his officials as he was planning, you know, the pogroms and the extermination camps and things like that, he referred to them as vermin. Because that's how he saw them. And as a result, they figured out a way to get this segment of people that they called unclean and get rid of them in a very effective, systematic holocaust. The Germans are incredibly detailed people. Um, back in 1917. It's thought, uh, or sorry, in World War I, uh, the German army was marching through Paris. And by the way, the German army in World War I was most likely the most organized, most efficient, most well-planned military the world has ever seen. They literally had trains upon trains every day carrying ammunition, food, and supplies for one company. And they had many companies of soldiers. And they had this whole thing planned out. Anyway, as they're going through, uh, as they're going through France, the German army was marching toward uh, Paris. And this is a real bunny trail, but it's interesting. The German army was marching toward Paris. And because of another battle that was going on, I think, further south, instead of taking the city right away, the, the army turned and, and started marching kind of parallel to, to Paris. They were 75 miles away from Paris. And mortar shells started falling in the city of Paris. The Germans were 75 miles away, lobbing cannonballs, essentially, at Paris and hitting Paris. 
they had a they had a they basically took a a gun from a um, it was like a ship gun, this massive gun. I think the uh, the the, the uh, barrel was 100 feet long. They had to set up cranes just to hold the barrel in place, and they tilted it so high that they had to figure in the Earth's rotation into their shot because they were shooting this sucker 75 miles. That'd be like us taking a gun out here, figuring out exactly where to point it and figuring in barometric pressure and weather and the curve of the Earth and the Earth's rotation and shooting it at Washington, D.C., and hitting Washington, D.C. There's a reason Germans make BMWs. I believe I have my car name right. I think that's a German car. Um, but order can really get you somewhere. It can get you somewhere like that. It can also get you somewhere where you're so efficient that you can kill, you know, slaughter 8 million people in the space of about five years, and most of the world doesn't have a clue what you're doing. So that's, that's the downside of dominant order. Dominant chaos, on the other hand, uh, generally speaks for those, and, I, and I'll, I think these two are the real, are the real strengths, um, obviously, but people that are dominant chaos or are more interested or more willing to look at that which is not known are your visionaries. They're constantly coming up with new ideas. They're constantly thinking, how could we do this better? And if you ever work on a construction crew with a visionary who's not the boss, it stinks. Because they're constantly telling the boss how we could be doing this better. I generally never actually lift a finger to help. That's been my experience anyway. Um, they're constantly trying to improve on what already is, on the systems that are already in place. Some of that's good, some of it's bad. The other thing is that that visionaries tend to see where the system isn't working for people. Because every system leaves people, in the, leaves people behind, essentially. And one of, the, one, of the, one of the ways that God has built, I say God has built, one of the byproducts of the way we're hardwired is that there are people with personalities that are dominant chaos that see where the system's not working and start to speak for the people that are being, that are oppressed. Um, You see some of this played out in, in politics, and, and I, would, I would say these, these, loosely, these loosely fall on Republican and Democratic uh, camps, so to speak. Republicans would be uh, very pro-business, a lot of order. The system works, sucks to be you. If it isn't working for you, you just must not be working hard enough. Whereas somebody with a more liberal tendency would look, and see, would look at an immigrant coming across the, the Mexican border and say, we need to help these people. Or we have poor people living in our cities. We need to help them. And you have this argument back and forth of what's the best way to take care of these people. But people that are, tend to be more dominant chaos tend to see those needs faster. Progress isn't as important as making sure that the people that are being marginalized are taken care of. Uh, that's, that's one way of, of looking at it. The downside of that is it tends toward instability and anarchy. It's a fact that entrepreneurs start businesses, conservatives run them. That's just how it works. And conservatives run them the same old way until the business starts failing, then, then people that are visionaries step back in and pull the business up, and then conservatives run them again. Because, well, that's just how God made us, I guess. But that, that's sort of how some of this plays out. Um, where else was I going with that? Oh, the downside of, of, uh, of the dominant chaos thing is that you you tend to have no structure. 
because structure is bad. Structure hurts people. Well, the problem is, Mountain View needs a structure. You need somebody to make a schedule. You need somebody to do recruiting. You need somebody to make sure our regulation, that we're above board and regulation, all of those things are needed structure. The problem is, overemphasizing structure doesn't care about you. It just cares about getting the work done the most efficient way and doesn't have time for your headache or for your emotional needs or whatever else. So that, that's kind of the downside of that. Um, riots of the 1960s, homeless problems, all of those things come as a result, can come as a result of, of uh, dominant chaos. I'm not going to have time to get into the other story that I want to talk about. Um, actually, I'm going to. So, so cultures and religions, especially over the centuries, have tried to figure out what's the proper balance between chaos and order. You know the Chinese symbol, the, the, yin, the yin and yang? The little black circle with, the, with the, uh, essentially the snake chasing its tail, one's black and one's white? That's actually a chaos and order symbol. And it was the Chinese, and the Chinese, uh, is that Confucianism? I believe it is. They were trying to figure out, okay, how exactly does this work? And that was, and, and that was one of the symbols they came up with to try to, to, try to illustrate that. Um, but the Egyptians, back in the time of Moses, had an incredibly sophisticated religion. And they had this story in their mythology of, uh, of some of their gods. And I'm going to illustrate this for you because they figured something out that was so interesting. Um, so you had Osiris, the Egyptian god. He was kind of the king of the gods. And he's the, like the, typical, um, the typical old benevolent king that doesn't see, like, like uh, if you read in, in children's books and things like that, you have the old king. He wants everything to be going okay, and he just he just doesn't see when somebody's coming along to try to take him out. So that's that's kind of the, the guy Osiris is. And then you have Set, another one of the Egyptian gods, who was uh, his half brother, I believe, who was the half brother of Osiris, who was trying to to overthrow Osiris and take over the kingdom. And then uh, the wife of Osiris was Isis and Horus was the son of Osiris. So you have, you have these four players uh, coming into play. And the Egyptians had this story where, uh, where Set, who, by the way, is pretty likely where we get the name Satan in our Old Testament. It's, it's likely borrowed from, from Egyptian mythology um, to describe the adversary as is more commonly known in Hebrew. Anyway, so Osiris is like, is like sitting there, and, and Set comes along and destroys him. Horus... The son of Osiris is shaped like a falcon. And I'm going to get to that in a little bit here. Um, Horus, and so, so Osiris is destroyed. Set is, uh, is now sitting on the throne. And, and uh, Isis, the wife of Osiris, goes down into the underworld where, where Osiris is now like living. He's kind of all in pieces because he's dead now. And Osiris, or uh, Isis, the wife of Osiris, gives birth to a son named Horus. Who is shaped like a falcon, and if you look at Egyptian paintings and hieroglyphics, you'll see that falcon that's that's uh, that's displayed. What happens is Horus sort of raises from the ashes of his dead father, so now he's he's based in the tradition of his father, but he's given the eyes of a falcon. And one of the things about falcons is they have some of the best eyesight. Of any of the of any creature in the animal kingdom, like the whole thing of seeing a fish in a pond two miles away, like that's that's attributed to that sort of a bird. And Isis, or no, not Isis. Sorry, I gave my name. 
Horus now, which is bearing his father's image, but now with the ability to see, goes back up into the world and destroys Isis, or destroys Osa uh, Set, who has usurped his father's throne. But in the process, he loses one of his eyes. So now you have this, this bird-like creature with one eye that is the image of his father in the fact that he, he is a traditionalist, but has developed the eyesight of a falcon. And the Egyptian answer to that question is you need tradition and clear vision to move forward. Does that make sense? And they figured this all out way back soon after the flood and came up with this mythology to illustrate that. That the proper way to go forward is not with the old traditional king, it's not with the tyrant, and it's not with the bird that can't do anything but see. It's with a mix. And that's actually correct. You need both to be able to move forward and actually not miss things. Anyway, sorry, that was, that was a bit of a bunny trail. I want to go back to, to Genesis now. All of that to talk about this now in the life of Abraham. So Abraham is in a predicament. Isaac is 40 years old. Sarah is dead. We buried her in chapter 23. And it is time for Isaac to be married and begin his own family. How does Abraham... Well, let me see. I'm going to go this thing's not set up right. So we're looking at how Abraham's going to respond to this problem. What are his options for Isaac? Well, one, he could, uh, Isaac could marry a local woman. Abraham indicates that he's not happy with that idea. They did not worship God. Genesis 15, God had promised that the local nations there in Canaan would be essentially become Abraham's servants. And Abraham was also concerned about keeping his bloodline unmixed. Talked about that earlier in class when we talked about circumcision and the covenant God made with him. So that's one option. He could marry a local woman. Abraham strikes that. Uh, two, uh, Abraham's servant Eliezer, which we think it's Eliezer, brings this up. He said, well, you want me to take Isaac and move back to where you came from? Abraham says, no, I don't like that option either. Abraham says, I want you to go back and find a wife for my son. The problem with that, that, uh, that option is that it involves placing the responsibility of finding a wife for your only son on somebody else. There's a possibility that the search will be fruitless, that he won't find anybody. And there's a possibility that if he finds someone, they're not going to come. So if you had to read Genesis 24, we would say that it's pretty solidly in the realm of chaos. There's a lot of unknowns. And I don't know if you think about marriage much, but if you do, would you be happy to sit at home while your dad and his hired guy figured out who you're going to marry? Y'all up for that? Why not? It takes a lot of complications out of it. Like, imagine, you wouldn't have to ask your dad. You wouldn't have to decide whether or not you're going to say yes to this guy. You could just leave it all in your father's hand, and he'll take care of it. And if, if he's not up to the journey, then, you know, his foreman can take it over and travel, like, 400 miles away to find you a perfect spouse. There's a lot at stake here. Look at all the people involved. You have Abraham, Isaac, 
Rebecca, who we come across later, and it's just called the servant here. Um, earlier in Genesis, we find out that El uh, Abraham is a chief servant in Eliezer. It's likely that this is this guy. But the funny thing about this story is that none of these people had a clue what was how this was going to turn out. Right? Abraham's sitting at home. He's out of the picture. Isaac is a 40-year-old bachelor waiting for dad to find him a wife. And then dad says, actually, we're going to let this guy go do it. Okay, so Isaac's just at home, you know. Rebecca, uh, the servant, sorry, has a huge responsibility and no way of knowing if Abraham's family even lives in Haran anymore. And Rebecca is likely a teenage girl who ends up being willing to go with a man she's never met to a country she's never visited to marry a guy she's never seen. She has no idea if he snores, if his breath smells like garlic, if he's nice, mean, indifferent, whatever. She has no idea if there's people there that are her age or if she'll make friends. All of that doesn't even <coughs> enter the picture, it seems. It's a lot of unknowns going on. you got to wonder what was going through her mind as they were making the trip south. And she was going on to a, to a life that was completely new. For what? There's a lot we don't know, but I would say there's also a lot they didn't know. We would call the future chaos. Why? Because it's unknown. None of you knows what's going to happen tomorrow. You're probably not too worried about it, actually. But what you're probably worried about is what's going to happen next year when you leave. Or you're worried about what's going to happen with other aspects of that that you don't understand, what you're going to work, where you're going to live, how your life is going to order itself from here on out. The future is chaos. But if God wired us to take chaos and turn it into order, how do you do that with something you have no way of knowing? Because everything else that we encounter, we try to take what's unknown and, and transfer that into what's known. And we do a pretty good job with it overall. But the future is something you can't do that with because you don't know it. People try. Fortune telling is a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States. Why? Because people want some kind of assurance that they know what's coming. We want to be assured that the future will turn out okay. I want to look at Abraham's response here to the things he didn't know. Reading for you verses 6 to 9 again. And Abraham said unto him, Beware that thou bring not my son thither again. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land, he shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this, thy, from this my oath. Only bring not my son thither again. And the servant swears to Abraham. Look at the, uh, look at the, there's three tenets of what I see here in the life of Abraham. Is faith, number one. He said, God will send his angel before you, and you will be successful. Coupled with that faith, you have what Abraham knows. He said, I know God brought me here, and I know that this is where I'm supposed to be. We aren't going back. Seems good, doesn't it? Until you get to the next part, we have what is not known. You notice that in verse 8, Abraham sort of adds this 
you know, a way out for his servant. He says, I basically tells his servant, but I won't hold you accountable if this doesn't work. He says God will send his angel before you, and you'll be successful. He says God brought us here. I know this is where I'm supposed to be. But then he doesn't know if this is actually going to work out or not. And he does it anyway. All those feelings were wrapped up in a step of faith that could end up literally anywhere. So what can we learn about the future from Abraham? You like to have your life planned out? It'd be handy sometimes, wouldn't it? Until the whole thing gets derailed and it makes it that much harder for you. What did Abraham do? What can we learn about the future from Abraham? Well, for one, we can trust that enough we can trust that enough light for the next step is all that I need right now. When Abraham sent Eleazar away with all of his camels and his whole caravan heading north to Haran, he had no idea if he would ever see them again. He didn't know. They could have gotten robbed and killed along the highway. They could have ended up in Haran and discovered that Abraham's family had all died of the plague and nobody was left anymore. He had no clue and no way of checking in with them until they showed up, until they showed back up in Canaan somewhere with, hopefully, a wife. But you look at what Abraham says that he knows. He said, I know God has brought me here. He said, I know that I don't want Isaac to take a wife from the Canaanites. And I know this is the next step. Did you ever take a step having no idea in the world what was going to happen? But you did it anyway because you thought it was the right thing to do. That's what Abraham did. We like to have the next week, the next month, the next year, the next 10 years planned out. We'd like to know what happens. Usually we don't get that lucky. Usually we only have enough for what I need for the next step. And the next, the next one is kind of along with that. Take one step at a time in faith that the next one will eventually be revealed. I imagine you've all probably been doing this already. All of you made the decision to come to Mountain View. But you have no idea how Mountain View is going to play in your life from here on out. But it was a step. For me, Mountain View was a step. When I was 19 and a half, I came here. And I came here because I was trying to get away from a situation home that I didn't like. But if I wouldn't have come here, I wouldn't be here now. I would have never met my wife. I have no idea where I'd be. Mountain View changed the direction that my life was taking at the time. All because I came. I had no idea what all would happen. And yet, that one step led to the next step, led to the next step, and the next one. The third thing is that we can dwell on what is known. It's easy to look at the future and say, I don't know, and allow that to become my focus. That's not what Abraham does. He claims the promises of God before he talks about, this might not work. And one of my fellow ministers at home uh, says often that when we struggle with the things that we don't understand about God, we need to go back to the things that we do know and go from there and base ourselves and ground ourselves there. 
And as you look at the future, there's no way to turn that into order without actually living it. But we can dwell on the things that we know, the things that do make sense, the things that are order for us. And I'm going to close with a verse from Job. This is something that he said when he was struggling through his lot in life at the time. He said, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. That first phrase, he knows the way that I take. And as we think about the future, and as we think about uncertainty and fear and anxiety and everything that goes along with that, we can rest in the fact that our hope is in the one who does know. It's just that we don't. And that's what's hard. But God does. That's all I have for this evening. Hope you have a good night. Hope tomorrow's good. And we're dismissed.